Morning, friends. I am Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I've mentioned this before, but I am the youngest of three children. So if you are a youngest sibling in this room, you know that one of your prerogatives as the youngest sibling growing up is to be as annoying as possible to your other siblings as you can be. And I will say, I excelled in that role. Uh, it was great. Uh, in fact, I so excelled in that role that I guess one of the most annoying things that I did with my uh, older brother, who's five years older than me, is I wanted to play with him and his friends so much that apparently I was so annoying when I would play with his toys, I would break them. I would constantly just, you know, destroy his things. So much so that my brother and his friends, it was such a habit that they actually wrote a little song about me. Uh, would you like to hear it? Okay, you can email my brother at, uh, no. I, in fact, this is a safe space, so I'll go ahead and share it with you. <clears throat> this is the song that six or seven-year-old Mike heard from his uh, older brother. Uh, it goes like this. Michael had access. Now it's broken. You'll never see it again. Do, 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 do. That was the song, okay? Now the question, why over 30 years later do I still remember that and have it burned in my head? Uh, well, the f there, I'll give you three things. First, words have weight to them. They have a power in them. Words that are spoken over us shape us and form us. Secondly, uh, that happens more uh, so when the insult is put to music. <laughs> That's good. So that, but, and then thirdly, they took the time to not just make a song. They had a musical outro to it. Like, it wasn't just the insult, but they actually, like, made some musicianship to it. So, anyways, uh, but the reality is the wor our words have power. Our words have weight. And those hard, hurtful, and sometimes even harmful words, even when not set to melodies, stick with us, sometimes buried deep inside of us. They shape how we think about ourselves and often even how we live our lives. I can think of a handful of more memories of my childhood and even stuff up to today when a hurtful nickname or a mocking insult or a harsh criticism shaped my view of myself and how I live. And in all honesty, it's not just the pain of the wounding words that I've heard from others, but it's the pain of regret of the words I've used to wound others. When my words have negatively shaped someone else's life. But by God's grace, I can think of other times when I've received the words of love and encouragement and affirmation. I can remember to this day a specific memory when I was in junior high uh, at a piano recital, I had written an original song and kind of put it out there to play. And I played it and I was coming down and I can remember this young woman coming up and just speaking words of encouragement over me. And again, like it was yesterday, I remember that. And again, I can recall other times when pastors or mentors or other people that I looked up to took me aside to lift me up and speak over me words that built me up and affirmed goodness, and even God's blessing upon my life. And even the last couple of years, some of you in this room have done that for me, and I'm so grateful for it. As a pastoral team, we see the power of words all the time. The beauty and life-giving that a kind, comforting, sincere word of love can bring to someone. But we also see the hurt, the life-shattering, the bitterness that a self-centered, callous word can bring as well. Because our words have so much power. And we have all had our lives shaped by them. And I would guess that even now, 
as I've been talking about my life, you've probably been thinking about times in your life when words have been spoken over you, either good life-giving words or harmful words that you still carry around in you, that still shape you. What words have you been shaped by? Because we've all been shaped by words. So I don't think it takes much convincing for any of us to believe what God says here in his word, Proverbs 18, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Our words are important because our words have weight to them. And it makes sense that words would be powerful, right? Words are one of the primary ways that God shows off his power. Think about it. God in creation, he spoke everything into existence. The famous phrase, let there be spoken spoken words. God in creation, the power to create. God in scripture, revealing the richness of truth, about himself, about us, about life and salvation through the word of Scripture. So God in creation, God in Scripture, and God in flesh. Jesus. What was the living incarnate God with us called by the Apostle John? The word. The word made flesh. Words have had a weight ever since the beginning. And that's why we see the weight of words, specifically the good weight of words, in passages throughout Scripture, like a few here from Proverbs. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man. And a word in season, how good it is. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Words have weight. Words have power. They can bring life and joy and goodness and sweetness and health to our world and to each other. But we also know the weight of words has the power to destroy. If you remember in the New Testament, the book of James, he describes the tongue just like a a, a bit in the horse's mouth or a rudder for a ship, that though it's a small thing, it can direct the course of the most massive things, including our very lives. But then he also says this tongue, though so small, it's like a single little spark that can set aflame an entire forest. That our very lives can be burned up and burn others up from the unfettered and uncontrolled weight and power of the words of our tongues. What a weight. What a power. What a responsibility we have with our words. Our words are so powerful in how they shape the world around us that Jesus gives us a very sobering reality concerning just how weighty our words are. When in Matthew 12, he says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, 
people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. That word careless means just idle, even lazy, or just non-thinking words, every single word. How weighty are our words? How powerful is our tongue? So much so that at the final judgment, when you and I and everyone who has ever lived will stand before our holy God and give an account for every careless word we spoke, we tweeted, we texted, we emailed, we posted, we shared or forwarded or whispered to ourselves under our breath, all will be brought to account. Our words have weight. And the weight of our words is tied to the heart of our words, that in fact, we are our words. Just before the verses in Matthew that we just read, Jesus said this, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And Jesus would say the same thing in other places, that our words are the overflow of our hearts. We are our words. And that's why we will give an account. Because our words have weight, and our words are from our hearts. They are who we are. Life and death. In the power of the tongue, our words matter. And that brings us to our passage today. Continuing in our series from the Sermon on the Mount called Reordered, where Jesus is coming after our hearts to turn our lives upside down. And today he's coming after our hearts by coming after our words, namely the integrity of our words. And we'll see that this message is as radical and confronting to us today as it was to Jesus' hearers then. So open with me to Matthew 5, and let's read our passage together, starting in verse 33. It'll also be on the screen. Read, read with me. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard it, that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, or by the for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. This is God's word. As we walk through this section together, we're going to see how Jesus calls us to an integrity of life through an integrity of words. So let's dive in together. So if you've been with us in the Sermon on the Mount series, specifically even the last few weeks, you've known that Jesus is in a section where he references and quotes some teachings that the crowds would have been familiar with, some stuff they would all have known. And then he shows them that they actually didn't know it at all, which is kind of funny. 
So he starts this section, says, you have heard it said from those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So while this is not a direct quote from scripture, it is a paraphrase of passages just like Leviticus 19.12 that say this, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Jesus is referencing here in Matthew God's command that his people keep their oaths and commitments that they make in his name, and doing so reflect who he is, his trustworthy character. But by this point, if you've been following along in the series, you should know that what Jesus is up to, right? He's going to call out the religious in the crowd for their false outward obedience while their hearts were still far from truly following God. And he's going to show them and us our need for a new heart through exposing their lack of integrity in their words. So the first way we see this uh, new heart Actually, it requires us to understand some cultural context about the teaching on commitment keeping that the Jewish crowd would be familiar with here. So commentators note that at this time, that the Jewish religious leaders, the the scribes and the Pharisees, they were constantly looking for loopholes to following God's law, how to seem righteous without actually having to be righteous. So concerning oaths, they had created a loophole of special circumstantial integrity based on who the oath was made to. Specifically, they said this, that you could make an oath to God that required a commitment to integrity and fulfilling it, but that same commitment to integrity was not needed when it was just making oaths to one another. These promises you could break. So uh, another commentator put it this way. He said this, some first century rabbis emphasized only the importance of speaking truth to God and downplayed the importance of absolute honesty in all communication. They thought that they had a special obligation to keep promises made to God specifically, but could break promises made to others when it was convenient. And I will note that guy's name's Charles Quarles. Yeah. But I think Charles is right. In other words, what we see here is the religious leaders were teaching circumstantial commitment keeping, or what I call selective integrity, a case-by-case basis for living in faithfulness to your word, that life could be divided, where we live for God in faithfulness in some areas, but we don't have to in others. Some places in our lives, God is concerned with our holiness, but in others, we shouldn't even really worry about it a divided life of selective integrity. And Jesus would have none of it. He was teaching them that holy integrity not only matters, it's all that matters, regardless of the circumstance or the consequences that truthfulness can cost us. He was teaching them about an integrity of life. But what is integrity? Well, that word comes from the same word that we might have heard of, like integer, like in math. You've heard that integer? An integer is like a a whole number. There's no division or breaking of that digit. An integer is a complete, undivided whole number through and through. And so for someone who has integrity, 
It's the same principle. Someone whose life is whole. No division, no breaking into parts, the same living no matter the circumstance and no matter the consequence. A wholeness in how we live. That wholeness of an undivided life of integrity is why Jesus says, don't take an oath at all. He's not saying, as some well-meaning Christian traditions have interpreted, as don't ever take an oath at any time. As it's been noted, Jesus himself gave testimony under oath, and both Paul and Jesus employed formulaic statements in their teaching to emphasize their trustworthiness of their own words. Oaths can be good. Think about wedding vows, oaths that we take in court, an oath of office. No, what Jesus is saying when he says, don't take an oath at all, he is saying, don't take divided oaths. Don't take one type of oath that you can commit to and another type of oath that you can just break. Be consistent. Be whole. Be a life with integrity. It's what Jesus is getting at in this whole Sermon on the Mount series, that God cannot be fooled. No outward obedience can mask a sinful, selfish heart. That there's no division of our lives. Some places that belong to God and his rules, but other parts of our lives are for us and our rules. That's what Jesus is showing the crowds here, then and there. But what about us here and now? Where do you, where do I, where do we divide our lives? What parts of ourselves do we give to God and his rules? And what other areas of our lives do we divide and say belong to us and our rules? God, you can have Sunday morning for an hour or so, but the rest of the week is mine. God, you can have this much of my money, but the rest of it is mine because I earned it. God, you can have this part of my life to work with, but these other sins, these other addictions, these other desires, those are off limits. God, you can have my attention when we're in the church building, but when I'm in my office, in my classroom, or at home, that's where I call the shots. God, you can have my sin and shame, but my life and my obedience, my identity, no, that's too much. I get to keep that. Friends, Jesus is using the Sermon on the Mount to get our attention. I know he's been getting mine through this series. Whether it's anger and hatred, lust and idolatry, marriage and adultery, or the integrity of our words, Jesus is after every part of us, our whole lives, undivided, all the way down to the heart. He wants us to be men and women of integrity, that we live an undivided whole life before him and before the watching world around us. It's our church's mission statement. <laughs> if you remember, the mission of Chantilly Bible Church is to make fully devoted followers of Christ who love God and love others. Or as the Apostle Paul says in passages like these about how much of our lives really belong to God. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
Do all to the glory of God. That word all there, uh, its literal translation is all. Do all, all, every square inch of life to the glory of God. Another way Paul says it is, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus is calling the crowds in Matthew 5 and calling us here today to an undivided integrity of life. And he says we cannot have an integrity of life without an integrity of words. So going back to our passage, read with uh, Read along with me in 34. I made that confusing. Don't read along with me. Watch along as I read. Verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So what does he mean here? Jesus is saying to the crowds, be of such integrity through and through, that you do not need to supplement your credibility by attaching it to other things. It's like saying the phrase, I swear on my mother's grave, right? Jesus says you don't need to evoke heaven to solidify people's trust in your words. You don't need to swear by earth or by a city or anything because your word is steadfast and trustworthy. In other words, God is saying his kingdom people should live with such complete integrity that people know their word is their bond. And they will hold to it through circumstance and consequence, and nothing needs to be added to it. An integrity of words from an integrity of heart needs no supplement. And Jesus continues, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So there's actually debates among scholars on what the phrase take an oath by your head uh, actually means. I tend to agree with those who think it's along the lines of, if I don't fulfill this promise, may I lose my head. <laughs> uh, as in, I swear on my life that I'll fulfill this promise. Or a more modern translation would be, cross my heart and hope to die. And Jesus condemns this. Saying, you cannot make one hair white or black. Again, Jesus is coming after our hearts through our words. He is saying, don't you dare be so arrogant with your words to make oaths and promises about things beyond your control, especially when tied to huge consequences if they aren't fulfilled. In other words, don't let your pride overpromise what you can deliver. Don't write oath checks you can't cash. I don't know if you're like me, but um, the older that I get, the more I realize that control is an illusion. We're not in control. We don't create our future. There's only one all-powerful, all-wise, sovereign God in control over our lives, and it ain't us. And Jesus is saying a life of integrity has words of integrity that come from a humble heart who rests in the sovereignty of God above rather than the arrogance of a foolish overpromising. 
And so as Jesus, the master teacher, does so well, he sums up the entire idea very succinctly by saying, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In other words, words matter. Faithfulness matters. Character matters. Integrity matters. Regardless of the circumstance or the consequence to obedience. Because friends, our words reflect our hearts. And this is so important because our hearts were meant to reflect God's heart. That's why integrity with our words from the deepest part of who we are is so important. So going back to when God said in Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Did you see that? Don't swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. Why is integrity of our lives, hear this, so important? Integrity of our words, so important? Because if in this room, we call ourselves Christians, that means little Christ. Then we are bearing the name of Jesus with our lives. We are his ambassadors. We are his family. We are his children. Jesus literally calls us his body. Jesus has chosen to put his holy name onto us and has sent us out into the world as his namesake. This should stop us in our tracks. Friends, there's no award, no title, no prestige or trophy or ranking that any of us have ever earned that dares to compare with the fact that the name above all names has put his name on us. We are Christians little Christs in the world. And by bearing that name, we bear the weight of reflecting that name to the world and how we live and in the words we use. Why is integrity with our words so important? Because our words have weight? Absolutely. Because we are our words as they flow from our hearts? Absolutely. Because we will be held accountable for every careless word Yes and amen. But perhaps the most precious reason of all, that we hold our words to a standard of integrity, no matter the circumstance, no matter the consequence, is because our words represent Jesus. And why it's so heartbreaking that we live in a time when people claiming Jesus and his name look just like the world and the worthlessness of words. Our words are meant to show the world the word made flesh. His goodness, his trustworthiness, his purity, his integrity through our words, through our lives. So then what does that look like? To live in undivided integrity with our words. To let our yes be yes and our no be no in a world where words are worthless. What does it look like to live for a glory and exalting of the name of Jesus that we bear pursuing holiness through any circumstance and at any cost? Well, here are some examples to consider. 
And obviously this isn't an exhaustive list. But it means not being willing to fudge the sales numbers to boost your quarterly report. Even when it costs you money or even that promotion. It means that your yes is yes and no is no on working your job to its fullest and not squandering time on social media or other distractions from the job you're being paid for. But working with integrity and relationships, it means not over-promising to get out of embarrassment by saying, it'll never happen again, I promise. Or when dating, professing a commitment and oath of I love you to trade for sexual intimacy or just as a bartering for a false relationship security. Or how about the ways we break oaths all the time with I'll be home in 30 minutes and we know we won't. I, I promise I won't work late again. Oh, I know we said we'd do that thing as a family, but we'll do it next weekend. <laughs> or how about, I just saw this text. Yesterday. <laughs> or how about this? How casually we throw around the oath of praying for you. And we're really not. We could go on and on. See, the question is, friends, not do we struggle with an integrity of our words, but where do we struggle with an integrity of our words? And what it looks like for kingdom people, it means no more compromising in our hearts concerning big or little lies. No more justifying walking in the ways of this world. It's placing our hearts, our mouths, our words before our living God and asking that he would make us a people who hold fast the integrity of our words, every single word. And it means committing to a community placing ourselves in loving submission to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who in God's grace can point out where our words don't align with our new life in Jesus and help one another walk in that integrity. Friends, again, this is a radical calling to Christ followers. Because as we've mentioned, we live in a world where commitments and truth and accountability mean almost nothing. In a world around us and often even within the church. We live in a world of alternative facts. People lying through their teeth. Social media and news outlets pumping out knowingly false information. Saying this is just how the game's played. Or this is what it takes to win. All the while throwing truth, faithfulness, godliness, and integrity to the garbage. And even Christians justifying it with each other and the world around us. We are living in evil times, friends, and to stand for integrity is an act of cultural rebellion, and it will come with a cost. Beloved, Christians, little Christs, who will stand against this denial of God in our world? Who will stand up and not just hold ourselves, but one another and our Christian public community accountable to the integrity of truth that bearing the holy name of Jesus demands. What will it cost us to stand out at work, in our communities, in politics, and even in the church against the promotion and justification of acceptable lies and the sin of selective integrity? It might cost us our reputations. It might cost us our career trajectory. 
or a relationship. It might cost us power or political advancement. It might cost us our very livelihoods to stand up for God's truth when we stand up regardless of circumstance or consequence. But more importantly, what will it cost us to not stand up? To sit back and allow the name of Jesus to be coupled with willful falsehoods, broken promises, fudging the truth, callous little white lies, just to get the fleeting pleasures of a passing world? I want to encourage us all together, brothers and sisters, our family. Together, let us grab hold of the life of integrity God not only called us to, but died so that we could have it. And let us love each other, to hold each other, to live that out together and stand against a world of worthless words. Friends, I hope you hear a command from Jesus today for all of us. It's the anti-Nike command. His command is don't do it. (laughs) Don't divide your life. Don't divide your integrity. Don't compromise your heart or your words. Trust, believe, stand firm, seek goodness, live for truth and faithfulness and holiness, and let your words show to the world the reality of the God we serve and the God who saved us. Let the word of flesh, the word made flesh, transform the words we use. Because the gospel is a deep and profound power, friends. In it, we proclaim that we are unworthy, that we are the sinful, the evil, the word abusing, the oath breaking, the hypocritical and arrogant. We are unworthy and we need mercy and grace and forgiveness. We need a new heart. And the gospel grants us that. That mercy, that grace, that forgiveness. Jesus, the only life of perfect integrity, the only truly whole, undivided life through and through, sinless perfection, regardless of his circumstance or regardless of the consequence. And this spotless lamb became our sin for us, sacrificed on the cross. He paid for our broken words. He prayed for our sinful heart. He prayed for our divided integrity on the cross suffering in our place, completely satisfying our debt of sin before God. The only way I stand on that judgment day on the accountability of my words is because someone's already been accountable for me. And the gospel takes our unworthiness and it puts it on Christ on the cross and it trades with us his perfect worthiness to us by grace, by faith, a gift. You receive it today. You can't earn it. Don't try. You just surrender to it. We are made worthy, not in ourselves, but in Christ and by Christ alone. But friends, we are not just forgiven and given a new hope and a new future. If you believe in Jesus, if you give yourself to him in faith, we are given a new heart and a new power, a new heart that old, dead, sinful, god fling heart of selective integrity and self-serving words is gone. That heart that plays by the world's rules 
It is after the world's passing treasures, gone. No, we have a new heart, alive to God by grace, able to truly now pursue God fully. And with this new heart, friends, hear this. We have a new power we didn't have before. The spirit of God in us. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer controlled by our sinful old heart and its impulses. We have a new heart with a new power and it sets us free to a new life. And it makes us different, different than who we were before and different to a world around us who does not know that transformational power. And that new heart and new life by the gospel changes everything about us, including our words. The weighty words from our heart. Now they come from a new heart. And the words have a new power, a spirit power that shows itself not in a self-exalting pursuit of our life, but a Christ-honoring pursuit of our faithfulness and truth, a life of integrity, no matter the circumstance and no matter the consequence. And all of life integrity shown in our words. And only in that new life, by grace through faith in Jesus alone, can we utter what the psalmist, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Friends, what words of your mouth is Jesus coming after you right now? Are there any falsehoods or white lies or little compromises to truth that he's calling you to surrender to him right now? Or what meditations of your heart might be tempting you to treasure the things of this world and divide your heart rather than a singular meditation on the glory of God in all things? What, is, what way is God calling you to turn and trust and follow him when it comes to the integrity of your words and the integrity of your life? Friends, if you're in here and you're not sure you have that new heart, you don't know if you've ever really given your life in faith to trust Jesus, today is the day. Now it is. All you got to do is give yourself to him. That's it. All you need is need. And if you want to talk more about that, if you want to pray over that, we'll have pastors and deacons and elders. Let today be the day of your salvation. Let eternal life begin today. And friends, if you're Christians, if you're little Christ, together in our own lives, together and in our public witness, let's stand for God and his truth and his integrity with our words and with our lives. May we use the weight of our words flowing from new hearts by the Spirit's power to lead us to show the world around us our beloved Christ in every area of our life, living a life of integrity with words of integrity for the glory of the one of whose name we bear, Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are people of divided hearts. Lord, we are people who are still battling 
the sin that remains in us. We are not right now one day what we will be in glory with you. But Lord, I pray right now, if there's anybody in here that's never given their life to Jesus, never truly surrendered to the hope and grace and forgiveness and mercy that only the cross and resurrection provide, that today would be that day. They would give themselves to you in faith now. But Spirit, I ask for my brothers and sisters that do know you, that bear the name of Jesus on their lives, that we would surrender to you whatever it is, whatever part of our heart, whatever word that's bringing to mind, whatever it is in our life that you're calling us to give to you so we can take one more step to becoming more like Jesus and how we think and how we speak and how we live and proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. Spirit, do the work that we can't do. And it's in your name we pray, amen. There's probably no better way to transition into an act of obedience and to do communion together. So what we're going to do, I want to invite those who are serving communion. Uh, you can go to your tables. Um, as we do communion here, a couple things to note. Jesus says we're forgetful people. So he gave us this act of communion, which together for a simple purpose of remembering. It's just remembering. We forget. We forget all the time. We forget the gospel. We forget who we are. We forget the truth. We forget all these different things. So we take communion together to remember. So I'm going to challenge you, even coming off the word today, in just a minute, we're going to play some music, and you can sit there and do some work with God, do some business with God. And when you're ready, you can dismiss yourself to go get the communion elements, come back to your seats, and then we'll take it together. But as you're doing your work with God, I want to challenge you to remember three things. One, Communion helps us remember our sin. The fact, again, that we aren't what we will be one day. But we are no longer slaves to sin, but we still have sin. What sin is God bringing to the surface in your heart right now? Is it a way with your words? Is it a way that you've been treasuring something over him? Is there something in your life that you know you haven't surrendered and given over to him that he's pulling up right now? Remember your sin and confess it to him. Here's a hint. He knows already. Give it to him. God, I am wrong. I was wrong. This is not in alignment with who you are. I confess it. Remember your sin. But secondly, just as much, remember his grace. Because every sin that you confess today, not only does he know, but you can't confess anything that hasn't already been nailed to the cross. It's gone. It's paid for in full. We don't have to fear confession because our sin has been dealt with in full by Jesus. So we remember our sin and we remember grace, that we are children of grace, fully and freely forgiven in Jesus. Remember your sin, remember grace, and lastly, remember the power that is in you. You are not a slave to that sin. That sin does not hold power over you. You belong to Jesus, you are his, and his spirit is in you. So I would say remember the power that's in you by the spirit of God. Remember your sin, remember your grace, remember the power. So take some time right now, spend this time with God, allow him to speak to your heart when you feel ready, you can get the elements, come sit down, and then we'll take it together. I encourage you to go ahead and open them up. That can be tricky, and we'll take them together. So take a few moments, you with the Lord, right now.